Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Good evening. As Andrew said, my name is Luke. Um, I've been on staff with Campus Collective here uh, since it started, and I'm a member at church here at HCC, if you don't know me. And I'm honored to share God's Word with you tonight. Um, my family and I are most likely moving uh, this coming summer, so this is likely my last semester on staff here with Collective. And um, when I was preparing for this sermon, I, I kept thinking, what, what, is, what could I leave them with? Um, and I thought of this text. Uh, and, and really, I thought of this text because the first time I recall spending much time in this text was in the summer of 2013 in Santa Cruz, California. Um, I was on a summer missions trip there. It was the first time that I'd been on kind of an extended uh, form of missions trip. And this, was, this text was the subject of one of the sermons we listened to. Um, and I can just remember my mind was just blown that night. I, I clearly saw a massive sin struggle in my life that I had never really been confronted with before. Um, and at the, at the same time, I saw this extraordinary freedom that Christ had to offer me in my walk with him. So this text radically shaped the way that I view my relationship with God and what it means to follow him. So if you know me well, you know that one of my deepest struggles is finding my worth in what I can achieve. And, and a big problem with it is that from the outside, it looks like I'm just doing a lot of good stuff. It may even be applauded by many, maybe even by many Christians. But often what's going on in my heart is this, this mess of pride, self-reliance, self-righteousness, and self-exaltation. This text pierced through all that, and God, like a skilled surgeon, laid my heart bare and went further in the process of freeing me of trying to earn my status with him and into the freedom of resting in and working from the completed work of Jesus. I long for you to know that freedom and for your heart to be able to rest in Christ and to be able to work harder than anyone because you're free to walk, work, not for your place before God, but from the place that Christ has already given the believer. The text we'll be in tonight is Luke 10, 38 to 42. It says, Now, as they went on their way, <laughs> Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet. And listen to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I ask that you will prepare our hearts to hear from you. 
Lord, I ask that you will soften us to receive your word. Um, Lord, that, that you will flesh out in us the, the deceitful and, and sly sin of self-reliance, of self-righteousness, and of self-exaltation. God, I ask that we would be a people who rest fully in the completed work of Christ and are freed from dutiful living into delighting in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in the text, we get a, a glimpse of Jesus' interaction with two women, Martha and Mary. And from John chapter 11 and 12, we know a little bit more about these women. Um, first of all, they were the sisters of Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Also, we know that these women were followers of Jesus and that Jesus loved them. But Luke, the author, not me, will zoom into a very specific interaction between these three. And at first, it would be easy to just brush over these four verses. But as we dig in, we will see some of the truths that are crucial to who we are and who we desire to be as followers of Christ. So verse 38 gives us the setting. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Where are they going? At the end of chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, and at the beginning of chapter 10, if you looked back, you would see that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, in chapter 10, had sent some disciples and, and followers of him, called the 72, um, out ahead of him to prepare all the villages that he would cross by for his coming. And he sent his followers in power. They were doing miracles. And the point of all of this was to prepare the people for Jesus to pass through. So that all who desired to follow Jesus might be awaiting his coming and ready. So as best we can tell, this village, they are now entering as a village that was ready and awaiting the coming of Christ. And we are introduced to Martha and her sister Mary. The second half of verse 38, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. See, Martha was awaiting Jesus' coming and was prepared to welcome him into her home. And it would, it would be easy to miss the subtle character of Jesus here. There, there could be his whole sermon on this point, but I've aimed to summarize it and get on to the heart of the rest of this text. Jesus does this often, though. He, he reaches and ministers to people by entering their homes. This isn't some distant, pretentious celebrity. Though he deserves more attention and higher treatment than anyone who ever walked the planet, you don't find Jesus held up in the resorts or roaming the halls of the temples and great government buildings very often. Jesus was glad to be found in the homes of people, often the lowly and socially rejected. Jesus purposefully blesses people by being present with them, by meeting them where they are. And Martha has heard about Jesus and has prepared her home to host him. And we look now at the other main character of the story in verse 39. And she has a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So we are told very specifically about where Mary has positioned herself. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And there's much that will be significant about this. We will hit a couple of the most obvious points now, but most of it we will come back to at the end as the text compares the posture of Martha versus Mary. One significant aspect of Mary's position is that scholars would note that this is the proper position of a disciple. 
You can see that in Acts 22, verse 3, and in Luke 8, 35, if you'd like to look that up later. So this tells us something about how Mary views herself and about how she views Jesus. She views him as teacher, her as learner. Him as provider, her as needy. Additionally, this is a position of humility and closeness. We often see people who have been radically changed by Christ positioned at his feet. As we look at Luke 8, 35, and verses 38 and 39 as well, we'll see a man who's healed from demons found at the feet of Jesus as well. 835 says, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Verse 38 now, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. In verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come up to his house. Verse 42, For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. You see, people that see their neediness, and people that, who have experienced the working of Christ often position themselves there at the feet of Jesus. And I don't have the text on these or the slides for this text, and we're not going to walk through it tonight out of time's sake. But if you want to look later at Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, you see another example of a woman who's a prostitute coming to repent to Jesus, and she's found at his feet. She's criticized by a religious leader whom Jesus rebukes. And it's a beautiful example about the importance of this position. You see, these texts help us see the natural response of someone who has been redeemed by Jesus. And if this was one of the cities that the disciples of Jesus had prepared for him to visit, then Mary and Martha had some time to think about how they would greet him. What was, it, what was important when it came to a relationship with Jesus? What did it look like when you actually have time to spend with Jesus? Mary knew what was important. She had prepared her heart for Jesus to come, and she had it exactly right. When there's an opportunity to be with Jesus, you sit and enjoy him. She loves Jesus, and she longed to be in his presence. Let's look at how Martha prepared to spend her time with Jesus. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And it would be easy to miss some really significant parts of this verse, but let me start by asking a question and giving you a moment to think. If someone walked up to you and asked, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? How would you respond? I'm seriously, I'm not going to ask you to say anything out loud. I just want you to think to yourself, but I'm going to give you a couple minutes of, or a few seconds of silence just to think of a one or two sentence answer. I wonder how many of us would start with something 
pertaining to us serving Jesus. Your answer might go like this. Well, it means I go to church and invite others, or it means I fight sin and I love others and you help people when you can. Or, or maybe you're a bit more eloquent and you say, well, it means I've been justified and display the character of Christ and die to myself and evangelize. I'm not saying that these things are bad or aren't a part of following Jesus, but I am saying that they aren't the foundation of your relationship with Christ. To steal a line from Alistair Begg, if you begin to answer the question of what it means to follow Jesus in the first person, you've already missed the mark. To answer that question, we must begin in the third person. It might sound something like this. It means Jesus did something. It means he saved me, a a helpless beggar, and now I get to live my life enjoying a restored relationship with God. I'm freed from the grip of sin, and with that freedom, I get to pursue God. The very thing my soul and your soul longs for. This is not semantics. It's not insignificant. It would be really easy to just waste your life by missing this. Following Jesus is not primarily doing stuff for Jesus. Now, I know I just really blew some of your church kid minds, but check me to prove this to yourself. Look, look at the text. Martha is described as being distracted with much serving. Now, what, what was it that she was distracted from? She was distracted from Jesus himself. Jesus is sitting right in front of her, and she is worried about doing something for him. So you might ask, if if following Jesus isn't primarily about serving him, then what is it about? Well, the whole point of Jesus coming was because we couldn't achieve or even maintain the standard of perfection. You and I failed. Jesus came not to receive something from you or me. He came to give us something. So if our response to seeing him is to start working in an attempt to earn our own way, we've totally missed it. This would be like if your favorite celebrity or childhood hero or the richest, most successful person you can think of showed up to your doorstep and wanted to come in. Imagine if Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people in the world, showed up to your door, and then the whole time you're just trying to give him stuff. Hey, here's this Timex watch. Or maybe you're fancy, you got a fossil watch. Do you really think that is why Jeff Bezos would be at your house so that he could take your cheapo watch? I'd try to give him my truck, and he'd be like, I think I'm good, I'll just take the $100 million helicopter I flew here in. But how much more offensive that we would try to earn our way to Christ by serving the one who made not Jeff Bezos, but the actual Amazon too. Mary shows us what it means to follow Christ. It's about treasuring Christ. It's sitting at the feet of the one whom your soul is made for. Now we're getting somewhere. The text is going to finish that thought for us in verse 42. So I want you to hold on to it. We're coming back. But first it's going to show us why working for Jesus can be dangerous. verses 40 through 42. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So from the outside, I think we would all look at Martha's efforts and, and just naturally see them as a good thing. Right? Martha's trying to prepare a meal and serve Jesus. It's, it's nothing necessarily wrong. In fact, it would seem necessarily good. So why could it be a bad thing to work for Jesus? Martha's attitude helps reveal what's going on underneath of her outward actions. Her frustration, self-promotion, and even challenging Jesus, the very one she's aiming to serve, tells us something. As emotions often do, they reveal Martha's desires, motives, and beliefs. Martha is attempting to serve Jesus as a means to earn her place with him. She made the mistake that you and I often make. She loves Jesus, but at some point or another, she's fallen back again to the ideology of her old life. See, part of being a non-believer means that you're enslaved by sin. And the only option is to try to earn your way through your own efforts. Enslaved by dutiful acts that you do over and over, hoping to alleviate your conscience, but never quite do. As soon as you get one part of life buckled down, another area of life just blows apart at the seams. That's the best life can get as a non-believer, just endlessly trying to hold it all together yourself. And often in our walk with Christ as believers, we struggle with running back to that slavish type of life. We get exhausted and distracted by a million worries. See, we all know deep down that the standard of a holy God is perfection. And when we try to make up for our own imperfections, we too go through the same sins, distractions, and anxieties as Martha. Look at the three things we see happen in Martha's heart. (coughs) Excuse me. First thing, Martha says to Jesus, don't you care that Mary's not helping me? I'm I'm all alone here. You know, Martha is asking for help because she's exhausted. When we try to earn our own way, we will be dominated by the sin of self-reliance. Martha is serving out of her own strength. She's trying to achieve something she will never be able to. And like you and me, her strength runs out quickly. For those who serve out of sinful self-reliance, life will be one cycle of self-exhausting effort after another, after another. Secondly, look at how Martha now speaks of her sister, Mary. Martha just immediately throws her under the bus. When we try to earn our way, we find within ourselves the sin of self-righteousness. We ultimately make our efforts the new standard. See, we replace Jesus' righteousness with our sinful self-righteousness. It's easy to find a way that I am better than another sinner, right? But the problem is we have accepted the wrong standard. Christ is the standard, and perfection is what aims at condemning us. The sin of self-righteousness leads to a jaded view of ourselves and of others and breeds disunity. Thirdly, not only has Martha sinned against her sister, she's also sinned against her Savior. Look at verse 40. Lord, do you not care 
Then my sister left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. Do you see Martha's first doubt is Jesus' care for her? Lord, do you not care? And then out of her doubt, she now tries to command Jesus because she no longer trusts his plan. She says, tell her then to help me. When we try to earn our own way, we eventually get into the sin of self-exaltation. When you forsake the completed and sufficient work that Jesus did for you and begin to trust in yourself again, you ultimately replace Jesus with you. And so instead of enjoying your Savior, you live in defeated mistrust of him and subsequently try to bend him to your will so that you can get what you really want, which is for us to be made much of. Self-exaltation seeks to place the Savior whom you once loved at your feet instead of the other way around. Perhaps the reason we walk in here tonight so exhausted angry with others and God isn't because Jesus doesn't care for us, but rather because I and you have turned away from seeing him as our treasure. And back to our old life where we're fighting a battle that we'll never win and all the while drowning everyone who would help us by our laundry list of deeds and duties that we set for them. I often struggle with this. Even in preparing for this sermon, I often feel myself anxious and exhausted, even frustrated, because my tendency is to let my work be my reason for my worth. Instead of believing that it is only by the work of Jesus that I could ever be worthy when he saved me and could ever continue to be worthy. Thankfully, Jesus has a better plan. There is only one thing that is necessary for us to have the good portion. Watch Jesus gently aim Martha back to this truth. Verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is the one thing that is necessary? Is it your list of morality, the hundreds of things you can point to that others aren't doing? No, it's Jesus' righteousness and his alone. You see, Mary has seen Jesus, and when she beheld his perfection, she saw her sinful unworthiness, and she knew that she was out of her depth. The reason that Mary rests instead of being terrified into busyness when considering Jesus' perfection like Martha was because she remembered and recalled the character and promises of Jesus. This is the gospel. You and I have sinned and broken our relationship with God. And while sin attempts to shame and condemn us, our Savior earns our way for us, then freely gives it to us. And instead of using our debt to enslave us, he grants our freedom that we might enjoy him. Unlike Martha using her self-righteousness sinfully to pummel Mary, Jesus uses his righteousness to purchase Mary. And Jesus purchased us for what we could never earn on our own, the good portion. Now, reflecting on the earlier part of this text, we have a pretty good idea of what that good portion is, right? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, but there are also many other texts that use similar language to confirm that suspicion. So we'll look at Psalm 16, verses 5, and then verse 11. 
The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How often does my walk with the Lord actually reflect fullness of joy and pleasures? To clarify, I'm not talking about some materialistic, happy-go-lucky, Oprah Winfrey positivity. I'm talking about a deep-rooted joy in Christ that it says Christ is enough at all times. In suffering or in celebrating, it is Christ alone that satisfies. He is my portion. Look at verse Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. <clears throat> See, the good portion is a restored relationship with God. That is what it is to be a believer. We get to see God for who he is and know him. That is the very thing that you and I were made for. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards describes the beauty of Christ. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, and God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. That is the portion, and it is the portion that won't be taken away, which is the last piece of this puzzle. Not only is Christ the deepest and most beautiful joy that our souls can be filled with, he is also the most secure joy and beauty that we could ever hope in. You see, if his joy was the deepest, but quickly fleeting, that it would be foolish to pursue it. It must be both deep and secure. Jesus' righteousness not only grants us access to God, but also secures it forever. Jesus gives a sweet promise that the good portion won't be taken from Mary. Not now to help Martha in the kitchen, nor for all eternity. Maybe you're saying, what does this actually look like on a practical level? After all, we are called to a lot of action in our walk with God. If we open scripture, we see that very quickly. There are things that God expects for us to do, and there are things that God expects for us not to do. So how does it all fit together? How do we work then as Christians? If we really believe that we can never meet the standard, and because of that, Jesus had to come and die and purchase our way, then we'd be foolish in disregarding Jesus if we attempted to return to our own way of earning salvation and right standing before God. Therefore, any work that is not immediately flowing out of our affections, taking hold of him, is despised by him. For if we are working out of some other motivation, it is that which is our treasure. 
Rather, God calls us to take hold of Jesus as our most satisfying good. And that all work flows naturally out of a fullness from him like a fountain that is overflowing. So no longer do we serve out of our own strength or out of our own well, if you will. But rather out of the fullness that is ours in Christ. Rather than self-reliance, we are granted the spirit and all the promises of God to fuel our work. Rather than temporary and fleeting sin of prideful self-righteousness, we are made right by the everlasting, perfect righteousness of Christ and thus freed to humility and unity. Rather than having to exalt ourselves unrightly, we exalt the perfectly deserving Christ who is able to freely give to all who look upon him as their treasure. So we are not lazy Christians. Rather, we are free people who work with a strength from a never-ending source, Jesus. That is the invitation tonight. To the unbeliever, for the first time maybe, Christ calls you to repent from your own works that you may gain the completed work of the perfect Savior. To the believer, like, like Martha, we often run back to our old slavish lifestyle. Turn your heart again to rest in the completed work of Jesus. Be freed from dutiful serving and into a delight in Christ that drives everything you do. Sit at his feet through time in the word, prayer, and community and work out of the victorious joy that is eternally secured for you in Christ. As the band comes back up, if you want to talk more about how you can personally accept Christ, if you're not a believer <clears throat> I would be overjoyed to talk with you. I'll be in the back or just wandering around. Just pull me aside. Or, or if you're a believer and you just say, like, man, I feel like I'm working dutifully. I, I, I still don't quite have a grip on how to fix that. Will you help me? And I'd, I'd love to talk with you. So you can find me or anyone else on collective staff or person that invited you here. Let's pray. God, we praise you. Lord, that you are kind enough to not only free us from condemnation, but to grant us joy in you. Lord, that you would restore your relationship in such a way that we don't live out of shame or indebtedness or, or slavery, but we get to enjoy you and live out of your fullness in spite of our unworthiness. Father, we thank you that Christ came and was worthy and out of his worthiness doesn't pummel us, but purchased us that we might know you rightly again. God, as our souls are craving, hungry, and longing for more, God, will you let us take hold of Christ so he keep us from sin. Lord, and invigorate our hearts with that joy as we go to worship you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.